Let's open our Bibles this morning to Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4, and we'll be looking at verses 13 through 25. Romans chapter 4, beginning at verse 13. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations, in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. How do guilty, wretched sinners become right with God? That is really the concern of Paul's epistle to the Romans. How does God put guilty, wretched sinners right with himself? And as we said last time, This comes under the heading, the category known as justification. Justification, we said, is that act of God whereby he declares sinners righteous before him, not guilty. They are absolved of all their sins so that when they stand before him, it's just as if, and we can make it personal, just as if I had never sinned, justified, never sinned. Justification, that act of God, whereby he declares sinners righteous, we saw last time, looking at the life of Abram, is independent of works. It is independent of works. Abraham was declared righteous by God, not because of deeds he had done. We saw that in verses 1 to 3, as we learned from verses 4 and 5. Righteousness is received from God, not as a remuneration for one's work, but is received from God as a gift. Justification, secondly, we saw last week, is irrespective of rituals. As Paul illustrated from the life of Abraham, justification had nothing to do with circumcision as far as Abraham was concerned. Abraham was counted by God, he was reckoned by God as being righteous before he was circumcised. His circumcision came later as an outward sign, as a seal, or we could say as a testimony to the righteousness he already had prior to being circumcised, verses 9 through 12. 
And today we come to consider thirdly, and this will be the final point of last week's sermon, and it is this, that justification is imputed through faith. Justification is imputed through faith, and Paul develops this idea in verses 13 through 25. And by that we mean simply this, that God credited righteousness to Abraham's account, so to speak, not on the basis of his works, but on the basis of his faith, the fact that he believed God's word, he believed God's promise without the observance of any ritual, without the performance of any good deeds. As such, note the number of times that the word faith and its synonym occur in this passage, as many as 16 times, 16 times in Romans chapter 4, the word faith and belief can be found here in verses 13 through 24. These two words, belief, faith, occur some nine times. So it's very, very important what Paul is saying here, underscoring the truth that we are not saved by our works, we are not saved by our religiosity, we are saved by sheer faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, in supporting the claim that Abraham was justified solely by faith and not by works, not by rituals, Paul, in verses 13 through 15, notice, argues that neither Abraham nor his offspring received the promise of God through the law, that is to say, through their observance of the law, through their keeping of the law. In fact, Paul is going to make it very clear in Galatians chapter 3, and verse 13, or before we get there, notice, and you will not see this in our English text, but in the Greek, Paul makes that point emphatic, namely that Abram was not declared righteous as a result of the law. Because the Greek text literally reads, it begins verse 13 as follows, for not through the law the promise of Abraham or his seed. You see, in the Greek language, when the writer wants to emphasize a certain word, a certain idea, he has a way of putting it first in the sentence. For not through the law, the promise up to Abraham or his seed. So let's talk a little about this promise that God made to Abraham and his offspring. Besides here, in verse 13, the promise is mentioned, notice, in verse 14. It's mentioned in verses 16, 20, and 21, a total of five times. But what precisely was this promise that God made to Abraham? Why? Because God, of course, made several promises to Abraham, so it's very important we know exactly what Paul is referring to here, in summoning him to leave his country, his kindred, the Lord promised Abraham that he would make of him a great nation, that he would make his name great, that he would be a blessing. We see that in Genesis chapter 12 and verse 2. God promised Abraham that he would bless and that he would curse respectively those who bless him and those who dishonor him, and that in him all the families of the earth would be blessed. Genesis chapter 12 and verse 3. To Abraham there was a promise that his offspring would inherit the land of Canaan. We see that in Genesis chapter 12, verses, verse 7, chapter 13, verses 14 through 18. There's a promise that he would have an heir born to Sarah, his wife. Genesis 15, verse 4. Genesis 17, verses 16 and 19. And of course, there was the promise that he would have an innumerable 
number of descendants. Genesis chapter 12, verse 2, 15, 4 to 5, as well as 22, 16 through 18. Now, what Scripture does, Scripture takes all of these promises and subsumes them under one grand promise, which we have here in verse 13 of Romans chapter 4, and that is that Abraham and his offspring would be heir of the world. They would be heir of the world. Now, here is something that we need to know. You will not find a portion of Scripture in which the promise is worded as such. What Paul actually does here, in fact, this was a rabbinical way of reading scripture. It's really an allusion to Genesis chapter 12 and verse 3. The promise as stated here in Romans chapter 4 verse 13, we're saying, is really an allusion to Genesis chapter 12 and verse 3, in which God assured Abraham that in him all the families of the earth would be blessed. Now, from Galatians chapter 3, and we need to follow very closely here because Paul's argument is very involved. From Galatians chapter 3, verses 8 through 18, we learn that this promise of God, namely that Abraham and his offspring would be heirs of the world, we learn from Paul in Galatians chapter 3, verse 18, that this promise of God to Abraham ultimately concerned salvation to all nations through Christ. So keep that in mind as we read in this passage concerning the promise of God. The promise of God to Abraham was more than simply the fact that he would have numerous descendants. It was more than just the fact that he would have the land of Canaan. It was more than just the fact that God would bless those who bless him and curse those who curse him. All of those promises, we're saying, were subsumed under this one grand promise, namely that Abraham and his offspring would be heirs of the world, and that involves ultimately the whole matter of what Jesus Christ would do in his great work of salvation. In fact, in Galatians chapter 3, verse 16, Paul identifies Abraham's seed as none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is why in Galatians chapter 3 and verse 8, Paul could therefore say this, and the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith. Here's what Paul says. He preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, in you shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Listen to how Paul describes how he further clarifies in Galatians chapter 3 verses 13 and 14, how this promise of God to Abraham, mentioned here in our text, is related to God's saving in Christ for the world. Here's what he says. For Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Here's verse 14, Galatians chapter 3. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. And so here in Romans chapter 4 and verse 13, the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world, we are saying ultimately refers to the blessing of salvation that would come through the Lord Jesus Christ, the offspring of Abraham. This promise to Abraham, Paul contends in the last clause of verse 4, came through, watch this, it came through the righteousness of faith. 
It had nothing to do with law. It had nothing to do with Abraham's observance of the law. It simply came through the righteousness of faith. Here faith is represented as a source of righteousness. And the idea here is that Abraham's righteousness that was connected with the promise of God was not a law-based righteousness, but a righteousness that derived from faith. That's what the expression righteousness of faith means. It means a righteousness that has its source in faith or a righteousness that derives from faith. In fact, going back to verse 11, note these words, the righteousness he had by faith. Now, scripture is clear as we read the text. Scripture is clear. Paul is making it clear that Abraham's righteousness and his inheriting the promise of God could not have come through the law. And here's how Paul argues that. Outside of this text, in fact, in the book of Galatians, Paul says categorically in Galatians chapter 3, verse 17, that the law came 430 years after God made the promise to Abraham. What that means then is this, that obviously the very nature of the case, Abraham, of course the law wasn't around, so clearly Abraham was not justified by the law. He received righteousness not on the basis of the law. The law was not around, is what Paul is saying there in Galatians 3 and verse 17. Now here in Romans chapter 4, 14 and 15, Paul is explaining for us further why it is that inheriting the promise of God, the promise God made to Abraham, his inheriting that promise could not have come through the law. Here's what he says, verse 14. For if it is the adherents of the law or to be the heirs, faith is null and void. If law-keeping, Paul is saying here is this, if Abraham was into law-keeping as a way of finding the fulfilled promise of God and receiving the righteousness of God, then what would happen is this, in that whole arrangement, faith would become non-existent. Faith would not be functional as God intended it. It would not be existent it would, faith would really be undone. Faith, which is the context of God's saving grace, means trusting. It means relying on Christ apart from works. That being the case, it means what? Faith would be emptied of its meaning. If Abraham was dependent on the law to gain favor with God, to find righteousness from God, then faith would be what? Non-existent. The bottom line Paul is suggesting is this is that faith and promise are not compatible with a works and reward system. Once the notion of legal obligation and indebtedness comes in the picture, what happens? Immediately, faith and the promise of God goes through the window because later on, Paul is going to say that the promise of God rests on the grace of God. God simply makes a free promise as to what he was going to do with respect to Abraham. What did Abraham do? He did not perform any particular religious rite or ceremony. He did not adhere to a system of law. The word of God says, Genesis chapter 15, verse 16, he believed God and God counted it to him as righteousness. 
Secondly, notice what Paul says in that same verse. He suggests there that if adherence to the law was the way to inherit the promise of God, not only would faith be null, but the promise would be void. Which is to say that the promise of God, as God intended it, would no longer hold. Why? Because God's intention was that the promised inheritance, watch verse 13, should be received by faith and not by adherence to the law. Simply put what Paul is saying here. If it were that Abraham and his offspring were adherents of the law in order to receive the promise of God, in order to receive the righteousness of God, that would entirely dismantle God's promise. Because God's promise was unattached. It was not conditional on his doing anything. All he had to do was take God at his word. Second, in further explaining why Abraham could not have been justified by the law, why he could not have received the promise of God and the basis of law-keeping, Paul establishes, watch verse 15, that the law invokes the wrath of God. The law invokes the wrath of God. And this is so because, as Paul argues here, that in verse 15, that the law by design calls attention to transgression. The law cannot save. If you will pardon my using that illustration once again, and that's why I'm not given to using illustration, much illustrations outside the Bible, but, but, but I think this is so apropos. You remember that advertisement where the security guard is there, the people are in the bank, they're crying out, they're saying, do something, help. And the security guard, just simply in a cool fashion, he says, I'm not a security guard, I'm a security monitor. I only tell you if there is a robbery. All that law does, it functions as a monitor to tell you, to watch your life and tell you what a wretched sinner you are. There is no saving value in the law. The function of the law is to accentuate human sin and not only to accentuate human sin, but to call God's wrath, cause God's judgment on the sinner for having broken, for having violated the law of God. That's what the law does. And Paul is saying here that because the law invokes transgression, here's the point, as he argued earlier in chapter 3, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, for sure all have been found guilty of breaking the law, and hence all stand under the wrath, the condemning wrath and judgment of a holy and righteous God. So that if observance of the law was to be the condition on which the promise was to be fulfilled, on which salvation was to be offered to the sinner, then here's the point. Then absolutely no one would receive it. Absolutely no one would be saved. Why? Because you see, no one, there's absolutely no one who can keep the law of God Perfectly. And by the way, if a person is insistent that they are doing all their very best, they are keeping God's law, they are keeping command, let me tell you, they had better keep every single one of them. Because the word of God declares in the book of James, he says this, for whoever is guilty of one, he says is guilty of all, they are broken all. To enter God's heaven, we must enter, listen, we must enter perfectly. We must enter 
perfectly, which means to say we must enter without sin. We must keep God's law perfectly. Here's the point. Which of us have done that? Absolutely no one. But here's the point. Through the gospel of the Lord Jesus, our Lord Jesus, the word of God teaches, he magnified the law, he made it honorable, he actively obeyed it in his life, he never sinned, and he passively obeyed it through his suffering and death on the cross for your sins and mine. And hence, when God looks at us, he can declare us not guilty. He can declare us righteous. Why? Because we have embraced the merits of Christ's righteousness, of Christ's goodness, of Christ's victorious atoning work. We have embraced that by faith. We have believed on Christ, and God says, go, not guilty. What a blessing. As one commentator rightly puts it, regarding the promise of God, he says this quote, if its fulfillment depends on law-keeping, men and women's inability to keep the law will ensure that the promise will in fact never be fulfilled. My friends, if you and I are looking to law-keeping as a way of finding righteousness, if you and I are looking law-keeping as a way of finding acceptance with God, peace with God, and here's the point, we are in for a rude awakening, we are in for bad news, because here's the truth, no sooner have we broken one law than the cry of vengeance, the cry of justice, the cry of God's wrath goes up before God against us. And this is precisely what Paul is saying in verses 14 and 15. Listen to how he puts it in verses 14 and 15. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be heirs, faith is null, the promise is void, for the law brings wrath. Watch those words. The law brings wrath. You and I, all we have to do then, the only alternative we have is to rest completely, is to rest solely, is to rest confidently in Christ, in the finished work of Christ, and not look to ourselves or our good works or our religiosity. And so in light of the inability of the law to bring one into the realization of God's promised inheritance, Paul, notice once again, emphasizes the critical need for faith. Look at how he does it in verse 16. He says this, that is why the fulfillment of the promised inheritance depends on faith. To get the drift of what he's saying, you have to read his previous statement in verses 14 and 15. Let me read it again and then read the statement so we can get the connection. For if, they are, if it is the adherence of the law or to be heirs, faith is null and the promise is void, for the law brings wrath. Watch this now. That is why, Paul is saying, the fulfillment of the promised inheritance depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. Paul is saying, look, because of what the law will do to us, because it's so damaging, because it's so deadly, it will prove fatal if we attempt to get before God on our own steam, trying to be good, trying to keep the law. He says that's why the whole thing, the whole scheme of redemption, the whole matter of our being right with God has to depend on grace. Do you see that? Here Paul mentions two salvation themes which form part of the very bedrock of the gospel. Faith and grace. Faith and grace. 
And the question is, how can you and I be guaranteed, how can you and I be assured of the fulfillment of God's promise as to our being made heirs of the righteousness of God and of life eternal? How can we be very sure? Let me tell you what. There are Christians, my friends, there are Christians who are worried, there are Christians who are troubled. Why? Because they're always having to take account, well, what commandment am I leaving out? What am I not doing? Am I doing enough? And let me say this, that's what law-keeping does. That's what a work system religion does. Once we take the path of works, we never stop working. We never stop worrying. We never stop fretting. But here's what Paul says. Paul says, because the law brings wrath, and because the law cannot bring us an inch near to God, that is why the promise has to be dependent on grace. And its being dependent on grace means this, that the promise is guaranteed. It is guaranteed. Why? Because everything now rests on God and not us. As Paul suggests here in verse 16, our only guarantee is the sheer grace of God and our appropriating that promise by faith. By our trusting in the atoning merits and righteousness of the Lord Jesus, casting ourselves entirely on his mercy, on his grace, any principle other than that of grace and faith to which you and I would look for security will end in sure disappointment and most certainly in eternal damnation. That is what the word of God is teaching And so it's strictly on the basis of faith and the grace of God that the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham is guaranteed. Similarly, if God's promise of salvation is based on what we do, then the gnawing, troubling question that will always be haunting us is, have I done enough? Have I done enough? Look at my life. I, I have come so short. My, I have, my life is filled with disappointments. My life is displeasing to God. And we look at that and we try to work our way to God just as Martin Luther did. Remember Martin Luther was a preacher. Martin Luther could not find peace with God. Why? Because he was looking to the law. He was looking to all that he could do. He went into what we call self-flagellation. He put himself through all kinds of rigors, going through winter without, hardly without any clothing, sweeping every square inch of the floor, wiping every square inch of the floor, and he could not find peace with God until he came to the realization of Romans chapter 1, verse 17, that the just, the righteous, shall live by faith. Now, according to verse 16, notice what Paul says there. The promise of God to Abraham is guaranteed. It's guaranteed not just to Abraham, but it's guaranteed to all his offspring, which raises the question now, who are Abraham's offspring? And we're not left in the dark, for the rest of verse 16 makes it very clear. There we are told that it's not only, watch this, it's not only the adherent of the law, but also the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all, as it is written, I've made you the father of many nations. Who is being referred to here as the adherent of the law? Because Paul says it's not just the adherent of the law, that this faith, this promise, this fulfilled promise is guaranteed He says, but also to those who have faith. Who would be the adherent of the law? In this context, the reference is to the one who is Jewish. The one who is a physical descendant of Abraham. The word of God says here that God's promise to Abraham is guaranteed not only to one who is a Jew, 
but to the one who shares the faith of Abraham. That is to say, any person, Jews and Gentiles alike, and are guaranteed this promise. In this respect, Abraham, the word of God says, is the father of us all. And he is the father of us all, which is to say that to the extent that you and I are trusting in God, you and I are trusting in the Lord Jesus, we are all the children of Abraham. And ultimately, what that means is that we are ultimately the children of God. Because here's what he says, Galatians chapter 3, verse 7. He says, know then that it is those who of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Galatians chapter 3 verse 29. And if you are Christ, that is to say, if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Now what's the logical conclusion of this? The logical conclusion of this is as follows. To be a child of Abraham is not a matter of ethnicity. It's not a matter of physical kinship, but of what? Spiritual kinship. It's not a matter of being Jewish, but a matter of professing the faith of Abraham. At the end of the day, this is the way in which we become heirs of God's promise to Abraham, and more so heirs of Christ and of his saving blessings. People today will pride themselves, oh, I'm Jewish, and it's good, of course. One can be, you know, when it comes to nationality, ethnicity, um, of course, there's a danger to that. You know, our glory should not be in ethnicity. Um, many people do that, and that's where all the problems in the world come. I often say this. I'm not particularly proud because I'm a black man. I am proud, if I must use the word properly speaking, in a healthy manner, because I'm a man in Christ. That, to me, is more than anything else. That, to me, is what spells significance. But here's the point we're making. The Bible tells us, in Christ Jesus, there's neither male nor female, for you're all one in Christ Jesus. If you're Abraham's offspring, if you're Abraham's child, then you're a child of God. You're heir of Christ. You're an heir of Christ. Now, Paul goes on, and we're going to be winding on very quickly. Paul goes on in verses 17 to 21 to describe the nature of Abraham's faith in God's promise. And if we're asking the question this morning, what does the faith that saves us look like? If we were to paint a portrait of saving faith, the kind of faith that Abraham had, what does that faith look like? And the thing that strikes us as we read verses 17 through 21 is that Abraham's faith was an unrelenting faith. It was a faith that was unyielding, even when the fulfillment of God's promise seemed an utter impossibility. You know the account. God appeared to him one night. Abram at this time was way up in age. He was 100 years old, roughly. His wife Sarah was also up in age. She was barren. God took him out one night. He says, look up in the skies, Abram. He says, Abram, if you can count the number of stars, I'll make your descendants as numerous as that. Here's what scripture says. Abram believed God. And it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now, though Abraham might have given up in unbelief, because humanly speaking, he had everything going against him as far as the fulfillment of that promise was concerned. In fact, the word of God says here, Paul actually comments by saying, Abraham considered his own body as good as dead. 
Sarah was up in age. She, on top of that, was barren. So for all intents and purposes, this promise made by God seemed what? Ridiculous. And yet, Abraham believed God. What is true saving faith? True saving faith looks to Christ. Even when it does not make sense, how can a crucified individual, how can his death on the cross atone for my sin and the sins of the world? To the Greeks it is foolish, as Paul says. To the Jews it is a stumbling block. But to those who are saved, it is the power of God. We believe it because God declares its efficacy. God declares its power. That's the kind of faith that Abraham had. Abraham believed God even when things did not make sense. Paul says in verse 18 of Romans 4 that he, in hope he believed against hope, that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. Look at verse 19. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. Verse 20. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. Verse 21. Fully convinced that God was able to do what he promised. True saving faith perseveres. True saving faith is relentless and persevering against all odds. Let me say this. There are persons who would come to Christ and be saved. But you know what? They rely on their natural reason. They give a thousand and one excuses as to why things will not work out. And let me say this. It is not for you to work it out. It is for you to simply trust in God, rest in the finished work of Christ. You say, how am I going to live the Christian life? Leave that to the Lord. He will work things out. And that's what Abraham did. Abraham rested squarely, rested completely, remained trustful, confident, and hopeful with respect to what God told him he would do for him. He believed and he did not doubt God. We see in verses 17 through 21 then that true, saving, God-honoring faith, the kind of faith that Abraham had, notice it was not as a result of his forcing and mustering up his mind to believe something that was merely fanciful. Many people believe that faith is really make-believe, you know, that faith is really believing in something that doesn't really exist. You psych yourself up to believe it anyway. That's not faith. Faith is not a matter of psyching up ourselves, bringing ourselves to think positively. What then is faith as suggested in Abraham's experience? Let me suggest to you, first of all, watch this, Abraham's faith by which God reckoned him as being righteous. Notice, first of all, it is God-centered and God-focused. True saving faith is God-centered and God-focused. Look at the B part of verse 17. In the presence, watch this, in the presence of the God in whom he believed. Here we see that Abraham's faith was a faith that focused on the presence of God. Hebrews chapter 11 verse 6, for the one who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. True saving faith in Christ similarly must have a view to the presence, the reality of God 
in Christ. Secondly, Abraham's faith, as suggested in the C part of verse 17, focused on the power of God. True saving faith focuses on the power of God because the scripture says he believed in the God who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not. That's saving faith. Saving faith is faith in the power of God in Christ, the Christ who was crucified yet rose again from the dead for the forgiveness of our sins. Abraham's faith, thirdly, verse 20 focused on the promise of God. His was a faith that focused on the presence of God. His was a faith that focused on the power of God. But notice, his was a faith that focused on the promise of God. According to verse 21, his faith was directed towards God's trustworthiness, his ability to fulfill his promise. We read in verse 21 that he was fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. And then notice in the B part of verse 20, Abraham's faith was a faith that focused on the praises of God. It was a faith that was focused on the praise of God. His was a faith that was committed to the worship of God. Because the Bible tells us there that he grew strong in faith as he gave glory to God. As he gave glory to God. And that Abraham believed God for that which to human sense and human reasoning seemed impossible, if not ridiculous, tells us this, that at the end of the day, when one's focus is on God, there is no room for self-reliance. Abraham clearly did not rely on himself or on his resources because as he looked at himself in relation to the promises of God, everything just didn't make sense. How in the world would he be able to have an offspring? How in the world would descendants come after him from his own natural son? It did not make sense. But he believed in the presence of God. He believed in the power of God. He sang the praises of God. He rested in the power of God and is the essence of true saving faith. So faith as seen in Abraham's experience with God then is not a passing impulse or emotion. Faith is not a matter of the emotions. It is essentially a matter of trust and dependence on God. And it is the kind of trust that is unrelenting. It is the kind of trust that is persevering, believing what God's word says, even when it doesn't make sense to natural human reason. It is an unwavering confidence in who God is and what he affirms. He will do. It was in this regard that Abraham cast himself entirely in dependence on God's promise. As such, note Paul's word as we wrap up. Notice how he sums up the feature of Abraham's faith in verse 22. He says here, and this is the second time he's using this expression. He says, that is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. Paul is saying with that kind of faith, with that kind of faith, that kind of unassuming faith, that kind of confident reliance on what God says, independent of any striving on his part, Paul is saying that's why his faith was accounted to him as righteousness. That's the kind of faith that pleases God, is what he's suggesting. And Paul, of course, doesn't stop there because he makes a point that this example of Abraham's faith is instructive, it's encouraging. As far as our own exercise of faith in God is concerned. Notice what he says, verses 23 and 24. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also it will be accounted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead 
Jesus our Lord. You see, those who believe in God as Abraham did are those who, like Abraham, put their trust, put their faith in God who gives life to the dead. Did Abraham believe in the resurrection? You bet he did. <laughs> he considered his own body dead. And he heard the promise of God. And he reasoned, Abraham evidently reasoned, that through the power of God, God could rejuvenate that dead body of his. And God could bring from his dead body life. Look at what Paul does in verse 25. Because Paul is saying here that just as Abraham's faith was in the God who raised the dead, here's the point, those of us who are going to be saved must have faith in God who brought back Jesus from the dead. He was delivered for offenses and he was raised again for our justification. Notice here what Paul does, and this is very important. There is no righteousness imputed to the sinner, no justification apart from the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, if our Lord Jesus had died and remained dead, that would not be enough to secure our salvation. All it simply would mean would be this, that Jesus died and satisfied God's justice. But it says nothing of our being the recipients of eternal life. So here's the point. He died, he was delivered over for offenses, and he was raised again on account of our justification. That is to say, his resurrection was a sign, it was a seal, it was a testimony to the fact that, yes, God is fully satisfied. The sinner has been declared righteous. The sinner has been reconciled. The work is done. It is finished. It is paid in full. We can rest, therefore, in a perfect, secure, eternal salvation, a salvation that can never, ever be lost. What can we say to that besides hallelujah, praise be to our God and our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And let the church say amen.